I'd like to thank a brand new sponsor to my podcast, First Leaf. First Leaf is a better way to discover wine that you'll love at a fraction of the price. You can save time, money, and stress. Join today and get six bottles of wine for just $29.95, including free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com gold. Well, we had a pretty big different story in the market on Friday than the one we were looking at Thursday morning when I recorded my last podcast prior to the open. If you recall, S&P 500 futures were down about 400, and in fact, they were down over 500 later that morning. But we did get a bit of a rally later in the day. The market still closed down, but well off the lows. Stocks weren't the only market that turned around during the week. Look what happened with the U.S. dollar. The dollar was gaining some strength based on the idea that the Fed was going to be tightening sooner than expected. Well, the dollar surrendered all of those gains by the close on Friday. U.S. dollar index was down just over 0.3 to 92.10. So it was slightly lower on the week. Same story with gold. The price of gold tried to sell off midweek on the idea that the Fed was going to fight inflation uh, sooner rather than later. But gold bounced back, had a positive day on Thursday and Friday. In fact, we closed the week just below $1,808 per ounce. You know, not the same thing with gold stocks, which finished down on the week despite the gain in gold. We had pretty big drop in gold stocks on Thursday. Gold stocks went down with the overall market, even though the price of gold went up. Friday, gold stocks recovered almost all of their losses from Thursday, but not quite, which is why they finished slightly lower on the week. But again, I think the main reason that gold stocks are behaving weaker than gold itself is it reflects the expectation of investors that the Fed is going to fight inflation by raising rates and therefore the increase in the price of gold is transitory. See, if people believe that inflation is transitory, then they also believe the higher prices of gold are transitory. And when you're buying gold stocks, you're trying to make a bet on the future price of gold because you're trying to buy the future earnings of gold mining companies. And the question is, what are those future earnings worth today? And they're worth what you believe the price of gold is going to be in the future. So even if the price of gold is high and maybe rising now, if investors expect the price of gold to tank because they also expect the Fed to fight inflation, then they're not willing to pay as much for gold stocks because they don't have confidence that those future earnings will look as good as the current earnings. That's where they're wrong. The future earnings are going to be even better because the Fed is not going to fight inflation. It's going to surrender without a fight. Inflation is going to win. And so the price of gold in the future is going to be much higher than it is in the present. And therefore, the profits that these gold companies earn will not only be much higher than what investors expect, but significantly higher uh, than they are right now, which is why these stocks are a buy. But the fact that investors are not buying them now is a contrarian indicator because investors have gotten it wrong. As I explained in my last podcast, everybody is bracing for the wrong impact. They're bracing for the impact of the Fed slamming on the brakes. 
They're not bracing for the impact of going off the side of a cliff because they step on the gas instead. One of the most significant reversals was in the oil market because the oil price had been way down on Thursday morning, ended up rallying positive. And another big day on Friday, oil almost recovered all of its losses on the week, although we did break a six-week winning streak in the price of West Texas crude. This was the first week in seven that oil was actually lower on the week, but barely so. We closed last week at 75.16, this week at 74.63. Although we almost hit 77, we got up to 76.98, but we pulled back on Thursday morning. We got below 71, so it was a really big recovery in the oil market, but we held last week's low. We did not take out the low from the previous week, and we had a very strong rally, so I don't think that 76.98 high is going to last very long. In fact, we'll probably end up taking it out next week. So as everybody seems to be convinced that the Fed's got inflation under control, even though they incorrectly expect the Fed to mount some type of battle against inflation with some trivial rate hikes at some point in the future, the markets continue to ignore the fact that commodity prices, in particular oil, continue to rise. In fact, I was looking at another article that I read with more anecdotal evidence of inflation just in the cost of constructing new swimming pools in Connecticut, uh, where I have my summer home. Apparently, you know, a lot of people are trying to put in swimming pools now. Maybe some of the people that just moved to Connecticut from New York, now they want to make sure they have a swimming pool to enjoy in their backyard. But the cost of building one is up about 40% from where it was two years ago. I think the average cost for a pool was $60,000. That's a pretty small swimming pool. But now the same swimming pool would cost you $85,000 to construct and it's probably a pretty long wait to actually get it done so you have to wait longer and pay more and that's pretty much the story across the board for a lot of things that Americans are buying and of course Americans are back to their old habits now that some of the stimulus money may be running out they are buying stuff on credit look at what happened with the consumer credit numbers that came out on Thursday the estimate was for an increase of $18.5 billion, which would have been a slightly smaller increase from the $18.6 billion in the month of April. Well, first of all, April's number was revised higher to $20 billion of additional consumer credit. But the May number came out at a shocking $35.3 billion dollars. That's about twice the estimate. It's also an all-time record. Americans have never borrowed so much money in one month for stuff like auto loans, student loans, and credit cards. This is all-time high. So even though consumers are supposedly flush with cash because they've been pocketing all this stimulus money, they're still borrowing all this money to buy stuff that they cannot afford. Now, a lot of the people who were covering the numbers, when you read some of the press reports about the consumer credit, they're generally positive. Oh, this is a good sign. The consumer is strong. The consumer is out there spending. The consumer is not strong. The consumer is weak. 
if the consumer was strong, he wouldn't have to borrow all this money to buy stuff. He would have the money. He would have earned the money. He could draw down savings. The fact that consumers rely on borrowed money to buy stuff doesn't show you how healthy the economy is. It shows you how sick the economy is. Now, more evidence that some of the lenders may be getting a little bit nervous, though, about the capacity of Americans to repay their loans. Wells Fargo announced abruptly that it is now going to be shutting down all of its personal lines of credit. I mean, it's still going to be extending consumer loans on credit cards and autos, but these lines of credit where people can just draw down a predetermined credit line, those are going away. Now, why would Wells Fargo be doing this? After all, they want to make loans. They want to make money. But of course, they also want to get paid back. They don't want to have big losses. And as I said on the last podcast, I think lenders are starting to get concerned about the Fed's fight against inflation ending up where the economy is collateral damage in that battle. And so a weaker economy that would result from tighter monetary policies may mean that more people will have trouble repaying their lines of credit. So Wells Fargo wants to get out in front of that by stopping the bleeding and making sure that it doesn't have additional exposure. Again, remember, the markets still don't really get what the real threat is. It's not that the Fed is going to tighten, but that they're going to fail to tighten. And that inflation, which everybody expects the Fed to rein in, is going to end up running out of control because the Fed is more concerned about the damage to the economy done by fighting inflation than the damage by the inflation itself. In the Fed's mind, the cure for inflation is worse than the disease, but in reality, it's the disease that's much worse. It's just that the government either doesn't understand that or doesn't care because its agenda is different than the public's. The public cares about what's good for the economy. The politicians and the central bankers, who are, of course, just glorified politicians, they're just looking for what's expedient. They just don't want the crisis happening on their watch. They want to kick the can down the road. Maybe there'll be another Fed chief. Maybe there'll be another president. So all they want to do is delay the consequences of the problems, even if making the problems worse is one of the consequences. Because if they were to fight inflation and those increase in interest rates were to immediately result in a market crash, real estate, stocks, recession, the public is going to blame the people that raised rates, the people that were at the helm of the ship, you know, when it ran into the iceberg. So if they can simply kick the can down the road and keep printing money to try to delay that day of reckoning, well, maybe it will happen on somebody else's watch and then they'll be left holding the bag. And a perfect example of this type of strategy is what's going on right now in Europe with the ECB. I was watching on Thursday a press conference. Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank, called this press conference to basically announce to not only Europe, but the entire world that the ECB was now changing its monetary policy. And the announcement came as if, you know, this was some kind of good news, right? They were letting us in on, hey, we decided to change our policy and this is all great, right? Well, what is the new policy? The new policy is designed to allow for more inflation, higher inflation. So up until Thursday, and I think it started around 2003, the official ECB monetary policy 
was to keep inflation close to but below 2%. Now, you might wonder, I mean, where do they even get that? I mean, what do you mean close to but below 2%? Meaning like, is that 1.9%, 1.8%? And if inflation is 1.8%, is that close enough to 2%? Are they supposed to try to ratchet it up to one9 I mean, the whole idea that we want to keep inflation close to 2% doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, if you put it into context, because the original mission of the ECB prior to 2003 was that 2% was an inflation ceiling. And the idea was, well, we just have to make sure that inflation is less than 2%. Now, that makes sense, because if you see inflation getting close to 2%, well, then you got to take some action to make sure it doesn't get above it. But in the original mission of the ECB, if inflation was a half a percent, if inflation was 1%, no big deal. They didn't have to do anything because they were below 2%. They only had to start tightening policy as they got close to 2% because they needed to make sure that they didn't get above it. Well, then why did they change the policy to insert the language that they wanted inflation to be close to, but below 2%? And that was because they wanted the ability to have more inflation. And so they wanted to redefine their mandate to redefine price stability as prices going up just beneath 2%. So for cosmetic purposes, they wanted to leave that 2% there. But really what the ECB promised was to make sure that inflation was close to 2% every year, but it didn't go over. But what they were saying is, we're not going to allow inflation that's just a half a percent. We're not going to allow inflation of 1%. That's too far away from 2%. We have to make sure it's close. Now, of course, the whole policy makes no sense. Because if inflation is running at 1%, that's not a problem that needs to be solved by making it go to 1.9%. I mean, 1% inflation is not bad. I mean, 0% inflation is better, but 1% isn't bad. But according to the ECB, it is because it's not a big enough increase. And, you know, they talk about inflation as if it's a desirable thing that helps the economy. But if you actually think about it and what they're saying, because they're not really talking about inflation in terms of the expansion of the money supply. They're talking about an increase in consumer prices. So what the European Central Bank is saying is that it's better if the cost of living goes up by 2% than 1%, which of course makes no sense when you put it in those terms, but that's exactly what they're claiming. But the reality is they don't actually believe that. I mean, nobody could be dumb enough to believe that. What they're trying to do is come up with a justification to create more inflation because that's what they wanted. And that's why they had to change the language because they needed higher inflation. And this was what was needed to create the ability to do that. Now, why do they want higher inflation? Because they're trying to prop up governments that are running big deficits. So they want to monetize the debts. They need to keep interest rates artificially low. They need to prop up asset bubbles. And all this requires inflation. And so therefore, they have to change the mandate, which is why they did it again. Because inflation in the eurozone officially, right, unofficially, I'm sure they've got the same problem in the eurozone that we do in the U.S., meaning that the official inflation numbers don't really capture what's actually going on with consumer prices. But it's obvious that the 2% ceiling was going to be breached. And so if the ECB's mission was to make sure inflation was close to but below 2%, 
if we started getting prints above 2%, well, then they would have to raise interest rates to lower inflation, which they can't do. And so now they have changed the benchmarks. And so the new goal for monetary policy is so we have inflation that is close to 2%, but where 2% is kind of the target rather than the ceiling, meaning that if it's a little bit above 2% or a little bit below 2%, that's okay. Just so long as it you know kind of averages out, it's around 2%, although they didn't go so far as to say that we have to make up for all the years where inflation was below 2% in the past, which is what the Fed is doing. The Fed is saying, hey, we had all these years of inflation below 2%, so we can have a lot of years where inflation is above 2%. They didn't quite go that far. They just kind of implied going forward that, hey, if it's a little bit above 2%, that's okay because it'll be made up in the future when there's a little bit below 2%. And so we're not going to necessarily have to react. We're not going to have to raise interest rates or tighten our monetary policy just because inflation is a little bit above 2%. But they did change their view as to how they would react or respond to inflation less than 2%. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What Lagarde said in her press conference was that the European Central Bank is going to be equally unhappy with inflation below 2% or above 2%, meaning that each of those represents a problem that the ECB would have to solve. And so in other words, if inflation is 1%, that's as big a problem as inflation being 3%, because in both cases, you're one percentage point away from your goal. But you know, if you really want to look at the absurdity of such a comment by saying that inflation above 2% is as big a problem as inflation below 2%, as big a problem for who? Because it's certainly not as big a problem for the consumer, for the economy. But a better way to think about it would be to think about a a bigger miss. Because if the ECB is saying that it's equally as bad to be above or below the 2% target, what would happen if inflation was negative 1% during a particular year? And that means that the cost of living in Europe declined. By 1%. So, in other words, food got a little cheaper, healthcare got a little cheaper, rents went down a little bit, education got a little bit cheaper, gas prices came down, food prices came down. In other words, everybody got to enjoy a higher standard of living because the price of everything they buy went down a little bit. So, everybody could afford to buy a little bit more because they were paying a little bit less for what they needed, right? So, the ECB is saying that is as big a problem in the eyes of the European Central Bank as a situation where prices go up by 5%. 
because if the target is 2% and you end up with 5% inflation, that's as big a miss on the upside as minus 1% would be on the downside. So the ECB is expecting the public to believe that the cost of living increasing by 5% in a single year, right? That means everything got 5% more expensive. Your food costs 5% more. Your rent costs 5% more. Your health care, uh, clothing. I mean, everything you want to do, just tack on an extra 5%. So everybody's standard of living has to take a big nosedive under those circumstances because you can't afford to pay 5% more for everything. So you're going to have to give up something, right? You're going to give up some of the things that you want because you're paying more for the things that you need. According to the ECB, those problems are equal. I mean, come on. And what if it's every year? What if the cost of living is rising 5%, not just for one year, but each and every year? Think about that. Think about what a big problem that is. Is it a problem if your cost of living goes down by 1% a year? That's not a problem at all. That's great. That means over time, your standard of living continues to go up as your cost of living continues to go down. But why is the ECB doing this? Again, because they have no choice, because they don't want to fight inflation. So they have to constantly move their targets. And the question is going to be, how long is it going to take before that 2% target becomes a floor? Because initially it was a ceiling, right? We can't have inflation above 2%. Now it's a target. We need to make sure we're at 2%. How long before the ECB says we can never go below 2%? Now our goal is to have inflation that's above 2%, maybe close to, but above 2%, right? They have to constantly change their inflation numbers because they can never fight it. So they have to tolerate it, but they're boiling this frog slowly and they're hoping that people don't recognize what's going on. But every single central bank that has done this has changed their inflation target. I think the first bank that did it was New Zealand. Some time ago, they came up with a 2% inflation ceiling where they had to keep inflation below 2%. There was none of this nonsense about close to 2%. I mean, below 2%, the further below it, the better. And, you know, I don't even think they would have cared. They would think they were doing a great job if inflation was zero, because that would have been way below 2%. The whole idea was just make sure it doesn't get as high as 2% and pursue policies to make sure that inflation stays below 2% per year. But there was political pressure later on as maybe inflation was picking up and the politicians didn't want the central bank to have to do anything about it. So what do they do? They widened the band. They went from a target of 2% to a band of between 1% and 3%, basically now allowing for higher inflation, but also giving the Reserve Bank of New Zealand a reason to try to be more inflationary because if inflation was below 1% or at 1%, hey, you're too far away from three. You need to kind of be in the middle. You need to kind of get up to 2%. So everybody is kind of following the same playbook now as to try to have more inflation. But you always have the political pressure for inflation. Even though there are people who benefit from low inflation, you have more people that benefit from low inflation. In particular, average people, middle class, poorer people, they are the ones that benefit the most from low inflation or from falling prices, but the real beneficiaries of higher inflation 
are governments, right? Because governments prefer to tax the public through inflation rather than through legitimate taxation. Politicians want to spend all kinds of money, but they don't want to tell the public they've got to bear the cost. And so one way to hide the true cost of government is to pay for it by printing money and spending that. So the government really wants inflation. Then you have a lot of leveraged speculators, mainly wealthier people who have borrowed a lot of money to buy assets. They want inflation. They want inflation to make the price of the assets they own go up and to reduce the value of the debts that they incurred to buy those assets. So you always have debtors that are pushing for more inflation and they are a more politically organized group. And of course, they have more money to donate to campaigns. So you're always going to get politicians airing on the side of having more inflation, even though it's less inflation that would really benefit the average guy. Of course, governments themselves are the biggest debtors. And it's not just the money that they borrowed that they really can't repay. And so they want to inflate away the obligations. But it's all the promises they've made to all the voters for things like government pensions, old aid pensions, and pensions for retired government employees. All these commitments are unfunded, and the governments really can't meet these obligations through legitimate taxation, and the politicians don't have the integrity to acknowledge the problem, admit to the voters that they can't get all the benefits that have been promised, so they take the easy way out, and they just print the money to pay those benefits. And so inflation basically enables governments to effectively default on all these promises they can't keep while sparing them the political embarrassment of having to admit that they can't meet the promises and risk not getting reelected. For example, let's say the Italian government has promised certain Italian workers pensions of 2,000 euros per month. Well, let's say when it comes time to actually pay the pensions, the Italian government doesn't have the money. And so the only way they can make good on these commitments would be to raise taxes on current taxpayers in Italy to make good on these commitments to retired Italian government workers. But of course, politicians don't like raising taxes. People don't like paying higher taxes. So what the government might do, instead of raising taxes, just print up enough money so that they can make their commitments to pay everybody 2,000 euros a month. But the problem is, All this money gets printed, and now it's not being printed by the Italian central bank because there's just ECB, but you have all these countries all over Italy that also have politicians in the same predicament. They've made promises they can't keep. They don't want to deliver the bad news to voters and raise their taxes, so the ECB is printing money to let all politicians out of jail. So now the retired Italian government worker still gets his 2,000 euro pension a month. They don't have to reduce it. Let's say without the printing press, without the cooperation of the ECB, if they didn't want to raise taxes, they may have to cut pension benefits, let's say in half. They'd have to tell people, hey, we're we're going to give you 2,000 euros a month, but we don't have the money. We can only afford 1,000 euros a month. Well, now you're going to have a lot of pissed off government workers who aren't getting what they promised. So the government keeps the promise because the central bank prints the money. But the problem is, with all that new money printing, prices go up. And let's say, to keep everything simple, prices double because they have to print so much money to pay off all these pension commitments that prices double. 
So now when you have your 2,000 euros a month and you go to buy stuff, everything that used to cost one euro now costs two euros. So in effect, you can buy half the stuff even though you have the same amount of money. What the government has actually done is cut pensions in half, but no politician has actually voted to make the cut. Instead, the politicians claim credit for keeping their promises, but now the pensioners are screwed because the euro has lost so much purchasing power that the effect is that their pension has been cut in half. But the politicians, they don't get blamed for that, right? They blame capitalism. They say, oh, your rent is up because you got a greedy landlord or prices are up because the businesses, you know, they're gouging you, they're greedy, right? This is the problem. Capitalism is bad. And so the solution to the problem, of course, is more government, right? How convenient. Government causes a problem and then holds itself out as the solution. But it's crazy when you see somebody like Christine Lagarde trying to deliver this news as if it's somehow good news for the average European. What it really is, is an official surrender. It's an admission that they've failed. You know, we were supposed to keep inflation close to but below 2%. And you know what? We can't do it. And because we can't do it, we're going to change the rules of the game in the middle of the game so that we don't lose, right? So now we're going to say that, okay, we don't have to keep inflation below 2%. It can go above 2%. But supposedly, this is a good thing. It is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. This is just spin. You know, we've all been there. You're standing in line at the liquor store. You're trying to pick out a wine and you're not really sure which ones to choose. There's so many different wines on the market. Do you want to go with a domestic? Do you want an import? Red, white, so many different wines to choose from. So many price points. Maybe some of us just pick the wine that's below a certain price or maybe you just pick the one that has the coolest label. Thankfully, now there's First Leaf which is a better way to discover wine at a fraction of the price that you'd find in a typical store. First Leaf is a fully customizable wine club that sends you curated boxes of wine that are perfect for you. And they have more award-winning wines than anyone else. With First Leaf, there's no guesswork, no misguided recommendations from an employee who doesn't even know what you like, and there's no frustration on your part. Each wine shipment is entirely customized to your unique palate and preferences. Unlike big box wine memberships, First Leaf uses a -a one-of-a-kind algorithm and your feedback to curate future wine recommendations. The more wine you taste and review, the better the shipments get. In fact, I just ordered my first shipment of wine. I'm looking forward to experience the taste when I get back from Europe. Those wines will be waiting for me at my home in Connecticut. The whole system is quite easy. They ask you some questions, you answer them, and then they come back with the recommendations of the type of wine that they think you'll enjoy based on your responses to those questions. And First Leaf works directly with the world's best winemakers, not only to find the best wines available, but to pass on the savings to you. Savings as much as 60% off the retail price. Everyone who listens to my podcast knows I like a bargain, and that doesn't stop when I'm buying some wine. So save time, save money, and stress with First Leaf, the wine club designed with you in mind. Join today, and you'll get six bottles of wine for just $29.95 and free shipping. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com gold. That's six bottles of wine for just $29.95 and free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com 
slash gold. Although when you want to talk about spin, I think some of the best spin out there is from the Bitcoin proponents, in particular, Michael Saylor. I was watching a YouTube video that included some of the things that Michael Saylor was saying to really pitch Bitcoin and to get people to buy Bitcoin, to go all in on Bitcoin. And the stuff he was saying was just so absurd. It's just the more that you listen to Michael Saylor talk to you about why you should buy Bitcoin, the more you should think, I got to sell my Bitcoin if you actually own it. Because think about the absurdity of the stuff that he says to justify it. I mean, first of all, he began his discussion of why you needed to buy Bitcoin by talking about how everything is better in a digital format than in analog. Right? He talked about music and how digital music is better than non-digital, meaning, you know, a CD or, you know, an old uh, record, you know, an LP or a 45 or however, you know, back in the day that we used to distribute music. He says it's much better that we can distribute music digitally because now the whole world can have it. It's quicker. It's less expensive. You can share your music all around the world when you do it digitally. Now, forget about the fact that the sound quality. If you actually have an old record with an old turntable and a stylus and, and speakers, I mean, you actually get better sound quality than what you get just listening to music on your iPhone, right? The quality of the sound is a little bit better, but forget about that. I will grant Michael Saylor's point that the ability to distribute music digitally is a big improvement over what existed before because yes, you can get more music to more people for a lot less money. And so I agree with that. Then he talked about the same thing with books. Now that you have digital books, you can disseminate information to a lot more people. Billions of people can read the same digital book, whereas if they were limited to a physical book that was made out of paper, how many copies can you print? And then you'd have to take the book and you'd have to mail it to billions of people. It would cost a lot of money. It would be very difficult. And that, yes, having digital books is better. Now, again, you could argue some people might prefer to hold the book in their hand and turn the pages, and that may be a better experience than simply reading off the screen in a laptop. I don't even want to argue that point. Let's just concede what Saylor was saying about the fact that digital books are superior to regular books because more people can read them and it's a lot cheaper to produce them and to disseminate them. So then after Michael Saylor explains why digital music is an improvement, digital books are an improvement, he then makes the jump to say that so digital property is better than real property. No, it's not. The fact that he can't tell the difference between digital music and digital books and other forms of property, the reason that digital music is still good is because I can still listen to it. I can dance to it. I can sing along to it. It can improve my mood. It still works. Same thing with digital books. I can read a digital book the same way that I read a paper book, right? So it's still okay. You don't lose the properties of the music or the book when you digitize them. But that is not true with other forms of digital property. Look, if I have food, that's not the same thing as having digital food. Digital food 
isn't going to satisfy my hunger. It's not going to taste good and it's not going to fill me up. It's not going to provide my body with the nutrients that I need. It could look like real food, but it ain't real food because I can't eat it. The same thing with a digital house. I can't live in a digital house. It doesn't provide me with any shelter. It's not going to keep me dry. It's not going to keep me warm. It doesn't have any of the characteristics of actual house. Same thing with a digital car. Maybe it looks pretty cool, but I can't use it to transport myself anywhere. Right? I can't take a date out in my digital car unless it's a digital date. And who cares about that? If you want a real date, you need a real car to pick her up in. And so there, there is a huge difference. But the reason that Michael Saylor then tries to claim that digital property is better than real property is because he says that Bitcoin is the ultimate in digital property. And this is why it's such a huge improvement because people can own this digital property. Well, what good is a digital house? What good is a digital car? What good is digital food? Nothing. And that's where he also tries to talk about money and talk about gold, which was like an old book or old music versus Bitcoin, which is digital gold and is better than gold, just like digital music is better than regular music, except digital gold is no more the same or better than real gold as digital food is better than real food or digital house is better than a real house because you can't do anything with digital gold. I can still listen to digital music. I can still read a digital book. So that works. Can I make jewelry with digital gold? No. I mean, I can make digital jewelry, but who cares about that? It ain't real jewelry. You can't use it in real life. I can't conduct electricity with digital gold. Digital gold is used in aerospace. It's used in medicine. You can't use digital gold in anything and you can't use digital Bitcoin either. So this is the false logic that he comes out with to try to justify why everybody needs to own Bitcoin. But he doesn't stop there because he then begins trashing every other type of investment that you could possibly own except Bitcoin, right? Because he says, what else are you going to buy? He said, if you want to buy something and store value for a hundred years, what are you going to buy, right? So first he talks about gold and he says, well, you can't buy gold because gold is way too expensive to buy. He claims that if you want to buy gold, you've got to pay a 40% markup to buy that gold. And then if you want to sell your gold, there's a 30% markdown. So according to Michael Saylor, there's this 70% spread in the price of gold. And so that's why you can't buy any gold because you lose so much money in the transaction cost. Now, I don't know where Michael Saylor buys his gold. I mean, he probably doesn't buy any gold. That's why he thinks it's so expensive. But for any rational person, who buys gold, nobody is paying a 40% markup. I mean, are there some people getting ripped off? Yes. That's why, you know, I came out with this special report, uh, Gold Scams, which people can still download because there are these gold companies that rip people off by getting them to buy these ridiculous quasi-numismatic rare coins that do have these crazy 40% markups. So there are some people that are being conned into overpaying for gold. But for anybody who does a little bit of research and knows not to fall for those scams, if they go to a place like Shift Gold, right? Maybe Michael Saylor doesn't know about Shift Gold, but if you go to Shift Gold and buy some gold, the markups are not 40%. They're like 1% to 2%. 
That's it. And it's the same thing if you sell. So this 70% is ridiculous. Michael Saylor is just pretending that it's so expensive to buy and sell gold so he can diminish the viability of actually buying it. He's trying to make Bitcoin look good by making gold look really bad. And yeah, I do realize that if you're going to buy a gold coin, for example, or a bar, you can't buy it at the spot price of gold because you've got the added benefit of having a recognizable coin that you could use as a medium of exchange. And to have that coin, it costs the refineries something to take that bullion and turn it into a coin. And so when you buy the coin, you're going to pay a little bit more than spot for that added convenience of having your bullion in a recognizable form so that anybody that you want to give it to, you know, sell it to or exchange it to, can immediately recognize what it is and how much gold is there. But, you know, you don't lose that value. When you turn around and sell the coin, you still recover that premium. Now, if you go to a place like Shift Gold, yes, we're going to have to mark it down a little bit because, you know, that's how we make money as a business. We have to buy low and sell high. But if you as a private citizen, if you want to sell your gold coin to another private citizen, they are going to pay you a price that returns to you that added premium of the fact that you're not selling them just bullion, just a gold nugget. You're selling them a recognizable minted gold coin. And that premium above spot is going to be returned to you when the next buyer buys it from you. So the idea that you can't use gold as a store of value because it's too expensive to buy and sell is sheer nonsense. But again, Michael Saylor has to trash gold in order to convince people to buy fool's gold instead. The other thing he said about gold too, which is so ridiculous to say why it doesn't store value, is he said that the supply of gold goes up by 2% every year. So he said, therefore, if you hold gold for 100 years, you're going to lose 85% of your purchasing power. So therefore, gold is not a store of value because 2% per year inflation means that after 100 years, you lose 85% of your value. That is complete nonsense. Yes, it is true that the supply of gold does grow by maybe 1% to 2% per year. That's been true for thousands of years. But what's also been true is that gold has held its purchasing power despite that increase in supply. Why is that? Well, because the population of the world also increases. And so you have more people bidding for that gold. So what determines price is a combination of supply and demand. Yes, the supply of gold is growing slowly on an annual basis, but so too is the demand. In fact, the demand may be growing even faster than the supply. So even though there is a little bit more gold every year, the value of that gold goes up because the demand for the gold grows faster than the supply. And if you relate the supply of gold to the supply of other consumer goods that you could buy with gold, the world is constantly coming up with more efficient ways to produce and grow other commodities, other consumer goods. And so generally, the supply of gold, that is money or a commodity, is growing more slowly than the supply of other goods and services that are being created and which are being bought with gold. So again, on a relative basis, 
That's what counts. If the supply of gold is going down relative to the supply of all the goods and services that you could buy with your gold, your purchasing power is going up, not down. So that is another bold-faced lie being told by Michael Saylor in order to con people into buying Bitcoin by claiming that because the supply of gold grows slowly every year that you're losing value. Meanwhile, the supply of Bitcoin is now growing faster than a supply of gold. Yes, even though it's theoretically capped at 21 million, the supply of Bitcoin today, the growth this year, the growth next year based on the new mining exceeds the supply growth of gold. So whatever he's saying about gold would apply to Bitcoin too, because the supply of Bitcoin, at least for now, is growing. And I think it's growing for another 100 years. I forget exactly when you're supposed to hit the 21 million mark, but it's not for at least 100 years. And again, as I said in the last podcast, it's not just the supply of Bitcoin that's growing. It's the supply of all these alternative cryptocurrencies that Bitcoin competes with that Michael Saylor wants to completely ignore. But again, it's not just gold that he was trashing as an investment. He trashed everything as an investment. He said stocks are no good. Well, I wonder if he includes micro strategies along with that, because he's saying you can't buy stocks. He said, how can you buy a stock? Because no one has any idea if any company is going to be around in 100 years, right? So you can't buy a stock to save money for 100 years, because how do you know that the company is even going to be around in 100 years? Well, first of all, how do you know that Bitcoin is going to be around in 100 years. How can he be so sure that anybody 100 years from now is actually going to give a damn about Bitcoin, right? You don't. So I think you have a better way of estimating whether a company will be around in 100 years. I mean, it is a long time, but there are companies today that are 100 years old. There are companies that are 50 years old. There are companies that have already proven that they have some longevity. And so you have a better idea that these companies will be there But of course, you can diversify. You don't have to put all your eggs in one basket. You could buy a bunch of stocks. And of course, just because you have a stock portfolio doesn't mean it's static for the next 100 years. You can manage your portfolio. So the stocks you buy today, they don't have to be the exact same stocks that you own in 50 years. You can adjust your portfolio based on the changing environment. So if some of the companies that you buy today in 20 or 30 years, you know, they're not really as viable. Maybe whatever they're making is going out of style. They're not adapting. You can change. It's not like you're stuck. I mean, who has to buy a stock and bury it and not even look at it for 100 years? I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous uh, the way he's trying to frame this. But of course, at least your stocks, if you own your stocks for 100 years, that's 100 years worth of dividends. I mean, you don't get anything holding Bitcoin for 100 years. But then, you know, when he goes and attacks stocks, he says you can't buy stocks because there's all kinds of risk. He says, you know, you have unions, the government can bust it up with antitrust, you got to pay income taxes, you've got competition, so the earnings can come down. So in other words, don't buy stocks because a lot of stuff can go wrong with stocks. But Bitcoin, nothing can go wrong with. Well, that's probably true. Other than the fact that people cannot want it, which means it's worthless, which means something went wrong. But from the respect of their earnings, yes, you don't have to worry about Bitcoin's earnings going down because Bitcoin has no earnings, right? You don't have to worry about any of the problems that stocks have because Bitcoin 
doesn't have any of those problems, but it also doesn't have any of the good things. So in other words, nothing can go wrong with Bitcoin only because nothing can go right with it. You've got nothing. You've just got a digital token that does nothing, doesn't pay any dividends, right? doesn't have any earnings. So, I mean, the only competition you have to worry about in theory is competition from other cryptocurrencies that people may prefer in the future to Bitcoin, but you don't have to worry that competition is going to reduce its income and therefore reduce its dividends because it has no income and it pays no dividend. Although, interestingly, though, after he trashes stocks and he tells you that stocks are lousy investments and you can't buy stocks because they're too risky, he then uses stocks as an example of why Bitcoin is good and why you don't have to worry about these big drops and you can just hold and you'll be fine by bringing up stocks like Apple or Amazon and going back to the beginning of these companies and saying, hey, as long as you held on and never sold and every time there was a big drop, as long as you didn't sell, look how rich you are today. And so he was using the example of these stocks, which he's just finished trashing and saying they're too risky to buy as a reason to justify Bitcoin. Because, hey, if you just hold on to Bitcoin, you're going to make as much money as the people who held on to Apple or Amazon. Now, first of all, he doesn't acknowledge the fact that the stock market is in a bubble, which, of course, he talks about all the time, except when he's using these examples. Well, one of the reasons that no one's losing any money in Apple and Amazon is because of the bubble, because the Fed's got interest rates at zero and we have this massive stock market bubble. If we had a honest Fed that had a sounder monetary policy, then people would not be making as much money in the U.S. stock market. But the other reason, too, that Apple and Amazon were able to keep going up is because they kept growing their markets. They kept selling more products and making more money. So these have been two extremely successful businesses. And the reason the stock price keeps going up is a reflection of the success of the underlying businesses. Yes, the stocks may be overpriced, but if they weren't successful companies, if they weren't growing their market, the stock price would not have done anything close to what it did because there are plenty of stocks that haven't seen this type of appreciation, even though they're all part of the same bubble. So these are successful companies. There is no way to compare Bitcoin to an Apple or an Amazon because Bitcoin doesn't produce anything. It doesn't generate any incomes. It doesn't have any cash flow. doesn't pay a dip. doesn't do anything that Apple or Amazon does. So it's an apples to oranges comparison or not even that because at least an orange is a fruit. You know, it's, it's, it's apples to, to nothing because Bitcoin is nothing. So the analogy that he is drawing between the success of these stocks and the potential success of Bitcoin is not true. And again, he also talked about how when the price goes down, you're getting something on sale, right? So don't worry. I mean, because when the price of Apple stock goes down or the price of Amazon stock goes down, if you liked it at a high price, well, you should like it more at a lower price because you're getting a better deal. You're getting it on sale. Except there is no sale price that makes sense for Bitcoin because there is no way to value Bitcoin. Just because Bitcoin is half the price it used to be, you're not getting twice as much stuff. You're still getting nothing. If the price of Apple is cut in half, all else being equal, yes, I'm getting a better buy. I'm getting to buy Apple's earnings for half the P.E., 
the dividend yield, assuming, you know, whatever the dividend yield is, it's now double because if the earnings stay the same and the dividend stays the same and the price of Apple gets cut in half, well, then the dividend double. The PE is half of what it was before. So you're getting a bigger value, right? But Bitcoin doesn't have any earnings, doesn't have any dividends. So just because the price goes down doesn't mean I'm getting more of anything. Now, people can say, well, gold, gold doesn't pay a dividend. So if the price of gold goes down, why is that a bargain? Well, because if I need to buy gold because I'm wanting to make jewelry and the price of gold goes down by 50%, I can now make twice as much jewelry using the same amount of gold. That is a bargain, right? I can make more stuff, right? with the gold because I can buy the gold for less money because gold actually has a use in the real world. But Bitcoin has no real use in the real world. So it doesn't matter what the price is. You never get a bargain because you can't do anything more with the Bitcoin that you own. Even if you buy more of them for the same amount of money, you can't do anything with a Bitcoin. So you can't do anything with a hundred Bitcoin. The only thing you could do is sell them to somebody else. But if they don't want to buy them, you got nothing. But he also trashed real estate. He said, oh, you can't buy real estate. Real estate, you got to deal with property taxes. He said, it's not very liquid. It's hard to sell. The transaction fees are high. It's not portable. So real estate is worthless. Of course, he forgets to talk about the fact that real estate delivers a real utility. You can live in it. You can enjoy it, right? You could use it as shelter. Doesn't that have some type of value? And you can rent it out. Yes, you have to pay property taxes, but if you're renting it out, you've got rental income, which is probably a lot higher than your property taxes. Now, yes, there are some negatives of real estate as far as, you know, why you couldn't use it as money, right? It's hard to use houses as money because they're not portable. They're not that liquid. The transaction fees are high, but real estate is still a viable asset. I mean, think about all the people that bought some property a hundred years ago. I mean, what's it worth today? Even adjusted for inflation, a lot of property has held on to its value. Sure. You've had to maintain it. You've had to pay taxes on it, but if you've been collecting rental income on it for the past hundred years, it's a pretty good store of value. So in other words, in order to make Bitcoin look good, Michael Saylor basically trashed every other form of investment, whether it was real estate, whether it was stocks, whether it was gold, nothing was viable, nothing was worth owning. The only thing in the world that made sense for anybody to own is Bitcoin, right? A digital token that does nothing, has no utility, has no use. You're supposed to put all of your faith into this digital token that is unlike a commodity in that it can't be used. And it's unlike an asset in that it has no income. And it's unlike any kind of currency in that it's not used as a medium of exchange and it's not a unit of account. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. So again, this is all hype. This is how everybody is trying to con people into buying Bitcoin. So again, I think the best salesman for not wanting to buy Bitcoin is Michael Saylor because he says the most ridiculous stuff. And I think he is in the most desperate position in order to get people to buy because his company is so levered up to the success of Bitcoin. He needs to do everything he can to sucker as many people as he can to buy Bitcoin. Well, if you're smart, you'll unload it before he does. 